I'm Mark Gagan and you're listening to a special episode of The Voice of Insurance, produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Today's episode brings together a trio of London market leaders. Sheila Cameron is the CEO of the Lloyds Market Association, the LMA, and was the guest on the very first episode of The Voice of Insurance. Clyde Bernstein is the Head of Broking Technology at WTW, as well as being its Head of Broking in Great Britain. Clyde appeared in episode 63, which was all about the broker of the future. Completing the lineup is someone who I have wanted to get on the show for a long time, as he is a strong, really well-known, exceptionally bright and eloquent executive who always has an interesting view of the market. Paul Jardine is a trained actuary, the former chief actuary and commutations director of Lloyd's runoff vehicle Equitas, and was one of Stephen Catlin's top executives for over 15 years. He currently has multiple interests, the most prominent of which is that of non-executive chairman of Lloyd's turnkey managing agency, Asta. But what unites my three guests is that they are all members of the recently formed Data Council, which has been brought together by overarching London trade body, the London Market Group, the LMG, to drive the digitisation of the market. This episode gets to the heart of what the Data Council is and what it's being tasked with doing. It also dissects the Council's first achievement, which has been to codify the core data record, or CDR, which will be the building block of making London market contracts fully computable. Sheila, Clyde and Paul are a lively group, and this podcast is a really good way to get up to speed for anyone who sometimes finds the reform process in the London market difficult to follow. Enjoy the podcast. Well, welcome, Sheila, Paul and Clyde to The Voice of Insurance. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. Good afternoon. We're here to talk about the Data Council. Why don't you start us off, Sheila, by telling us what it is and what its role is and why it's so important? Thank you, Mark, and thank you for having us. The purpose of the Data Council is really, really simple. It is, first of all, to drive digitalisation, and second of all, is to drive adoption across our marketplace. And we want to drive adoption spread across five phases. So the first of those phases is about data standards and what is our standards methodology of choice. The second phase then is all about what's called the CDR or the core data record. And the purpose of the core data record is very straightforward. It does two things. It facilitates accounting and settlement and it facilitates tax and regulatory reporting. The third phase then is all about computable contracts and how do we build those computable contracts across our marketplace. Then the fourth phase is about the process. So who is responsible for submitting which piece of data to what degree of quality to which system at what point in the process? And that sounds like it should be relatively straightforward, but it isn't and it's actually quite complex for our marketplace. And the fifth and final phase then is all about APIs. And once we've decided, you know, what our standard is, what data we're going to interoperate with each other and send to each other, we will work on the API side of things to ensure that we talk to each other in a standardised way. But the role of the Data Council is very simple. Drive digitisation across those five phases and then drive adoption of those five phases. So you're all members of this council and obviously it's representative of the marketplace. Clyde, perhaps give us some kind of context of where we are on this. For example, if I was a layman in the street and I said, oh, well, I thought you were doing 90% of your business on PPL already. So I would say, wasn't it already digitized, for example, to give people out there a sense of what you really mean by digitization and what this core data record is and why it's different from what's come before. 
Mark, I guess there's a recognition that actually as an industry, if we're going to be fit for the market of the future, we have to recognize that the industry needs to adapt. And digitization is a natural part of that evolution. And there's an appreciation that if we are to change, to achieve the real benefits that Sheila's talking about around speed, cost, efficiency, we need to bring all market participants with us on this journey. And the core data record is a starting point on that evolution to get fit for the market of the future. And Paul, how would you describe this for the layperson, for someone out there thinking, I thought we were digital? You and I both know, Mark, that the phrase digitization, I think, is massively overused. I mean, I think what we're trying to achieve through the Data Council, the kind of firm foundations for a different future, whilst there may be a common perception that everything is driven by technology and machines, that the reality, as we all know in, in our marketplace, is that there's an awful lot of manual effort, an awful lot of manual error, an awful lot of manual work around. And so what we're trying to achieve, as I think as Sheila alluded to, is firm foundations in a core data record that in this project means that we start at the back end of the process. And I know people have had questions about, well, why don't you start with placing? The real issue is that actually when it comes to settlement, when it comes to back office processing, I think we all agree on the data. It's data that we all provide today. And we can effectively turn our back office systems into very efficient non-error-prone operations that then feeds a lot of the reporting and regulatory reporting that the market needs. And with those firm foundations, I think you then cascade through and walk through the various stages of the value chain, because one of the guiding principles that we have as a data council is that we have the customer in mind with every discussion and every decision that we make. And eventually, our aim is to clearly make that customer journey a world-class customer journey with minimal workarounds, single point of data entry, and one single version of the truth. So where are we with the CDR at the moment? You're really grabbing the nettle right at the moment. And how long is it going to be before we get this core data record for accounting and settlement? So I'm really pleased to be able to say that at our last meeting, we signed off the core data record. So we now have an agreed core data record, which, as Paul mentioned, is all about the core data that facilitates the back office processes. That's what we all know we absolutely must do. We must account, we must settle, we must perform our tax and regulatory responsibilities. And that's a common set of data, which we have now, as the Data Council, agreed to align with the Accord standards. So we have changed the CDR very slightly to ensure that it aligns with the Accord standards. And we're pleased to be able to announce that we've got that agreement on a cross-market basis. You know, that's because we have brought together the Data Council with the broken community around the table, managing agents, company market, Lloyd's, PPL, Accord, the exchanging joint ventures, as well as a plethora of association involvement. And by working together, by collaborating together, we've quickly been able to decide that our methodology of choice is Accord. And we have aligned the CDR to Accord, and now we have published the data record. And it's now out there for people to start looking at and ensuring that they're going to bring their systems in line and they capture the data in line with how the CDR is defined. Does that mean that there's no what we used to call Londonisms left? Or has Accord now adopted some of your Londonisms? We have aligned to the GRLC within Accord, which is a specialty data standard within Accord. So we have tried to remove as many Londonisms as it is possible to do and ensure that we align to global standards. That was one of the guiding principles that we put in place 
for the Data Council when we got started because we wanted to ensure that we standardised on a global basis as much as it was possible to do. And how long do you think it's going to take to get this implemented, get it humming along? Okay, it's not going to be with placing, but it's going to be for all your reporting. And so everyone will have all this stuff at their fingertips when, they, when, when this is done. How long is it going to be before you get it implemented? So I think it will take time to implement. We need to work through the other phases that we have defined. We need to define how are we going to capture it? You know, we, we start with what is the data going to look like? It's going to be Accord compliant. What are we going to capture? That's the CDR. Now we have to move on to how are we going to capture it? We're going to capture it in the IMRC and moving on eventually into computable contracts. Okay, we've, we've now established that. Then we need to move on to the process. Who is responsible for capturing that data at what point in the process and to what degree of quality? Those are the sorts of things we need to be able to be clear about. But we're going to do this in a phased manner. And as I've said before, perfect is the enemy of good enough to get started. We've started with the standards. We've started with the core data that we need. Now onto the contract, then onto the process. And when we're able to articulate that more broadly and out to the market, we can then start to work through what people need to do in terms of changing their systems, their processes. And I would hope, you know, from a core data record perspective, the vast majority of that data is already in people's systems. It might be in different places. Year of account might be two digits instead of four digits. We need to start harmonising and ensure we're all talking the same language to each other. So that's where we can start work firms can start looking at the elements of the CDR and ensuring that they can align to what those elements are sooner than later. We will continue work on the contract and the process and we will come back as soon as we have that information available to the market and share it with you. I'm going to ask Clyde and then I'm going to ask Paul. So Clyde, from a broker perspective, what you're seeing here from the CDR, and you're saying, right, it's got all 39 out of the same fields that I've already got and there's a couple here that are a bit weird or that they're in different formats. How much of a job is it to go back through all your systems and make them fill those 39 fields or whatever the number is in the right way? Is it a nightmare or is it something that is actually doable these days? Is it all mappable? Look, I think we're on a journey, Mark. And the way that we start to decide how we capture that information, mm. if it's not captured already, you have to be able to tell a story about why you're changing and what are the benefits to, as Paul said, the client in the first instance. So whilst a large amount of the data that's being required for the core data record is available today, the process by which it's captured, the points at which it's captured in the placement journey might be quite different depending on your organization, the maturity of your digital journey. So I think actually we need to go through the process. We have to map out who is going to provide that data and at what point. But if you think about actually the work that's being done in other initiatives, all aligned to the global accord standard. There's good experience, for example, in reinsurance since 2012, where the Rushkalon initiative, which is a combination of major reinsurers and brokers who have been looking very much around sort of messaging on placement of accounting and billing. And WCW has been a member of that. We were a founding member. Yes, we were. Yeah. But since 2018, they started to look at actually the placement around direct and facultative. So this is pre-bind work and initiatives. But the interesting thing there is that actually the learnings from Rushkalon will be aligned to Accord, and therefore the learnings can be transferable as we move the core data record journey beyond back office into more sort of elements that do drive client experience. Because I remember Accord was part of that initiative, wasn't it, right at the beginning? Yes, it was. But what's your sense of how much of this are you going to get your clients to do? 
if we had a risk manager in the, in the room, would they be saying, oh, goodness me, you're going to be making me fill all this stuff in? So that's one of the debates we're going to have to have as part of this committee about actually how difficult is that process? Is it available? Have the clients got the wherewithal to provide that? And it won't necessarily all be provided by the customers. If you think about some of the availability of data today, as actually the maturity of the industry improves, the ability to collate this information and without making an onus on customers necessarily, you can get it through different sources. So I guess the key thing, Mark, is articulating why we're doing what we're doing with the core data record, because this is a stepping stone into a much bigger opportunity around addressing clarity of contract, certainty of payment, and all of the other things that start to come through from computable trading in the marketplace. And Paul, I'm sure if we looked around the bowels of this building, we would find bits of your DNA because you've been sort of embedded in the operations of the London market for many, many years. How much of a sharp intake of breath is what we all agree is a very, very important moment, but how much of a sharp intake of breath is it? How much do you think you have to throw out of all your old legacy systems to make this work? I think people that are hampered by legacy systems and aging technology, regardless of whether or not we come up with a core data record and a new approach, there will be a sharp intake of breath because change is happening and the way in which IT architectures are developing and the way in which people think about systems, whether it's owned, built, rented, borrowed, etc., is changing almost every day. For me, I don't think that this is as much of a change for the underlying systems in terms of its data spec, as you might imagine. I mean, I think the data items are all there in the main, as Sheila said, maybe in different places, but I think there is common agreement and, and actually an enthusiasm in the marketplace to actually start this process. Our problem, as we all know, that there have been many initiatives over the years, and unfortunately, success has been rather hard to find. But I think, as Sheila described, for me, this is one of the first times that I've seen almost every stakeholder around a table and also beneath the data council, because it's very easy as a council to hold your hand up when things go well and you get things that you can agree and announce. But the work of the underlying technical committee has been astounding. And these are people that have full-time day jobs and they have given up their time freely and their organizations have supported them in that. And they have worked like Trojans and taken in thousands of pieces of feedback and debated and deliberated and have come back with recommendations. So for me, it's incredibly powerful. And I'm really optimistic that this is the start of a journey that will lead to success and will fundamentally change the customer perception of specialty insurance and reinsurance. So I'd like to ask everyone now, you've been talking about this IMRC, the Intelligent Market Reform contract, to unbundle it, its jargon. Is that going to be the key to unlocking everything? And obviously, Paul has already explained about how we need to work on the things that we can fix. So we're working with accounting and settlement, which is, of course, many would say the wrong way around, rather than starting with placing, because I presume because placing is so much more complex and there's so many more potential bits of information with every different class of business, every different bespoke type of risk that you've got there. What is the idea behind this intelligent market reform contract? And what's going to be so different about it as opposed to the market reform contract, which we've had for over 20 years? So I think we need to look at this in the context of computable contracts overall. And where are we trying to get to with computable contracts? Yeah, and if you can really say, what are these computable contracts? It's the sort of thing that I'd hear about at an InsurTech conference, and it sounds really exciting. But if you can run through again for the listeners to say, what is that? 
I look at it as three phases to get us ultimately to a computable contract. And let's go at it step by step. So phase one of computable contracts is about the CDR. So let's capture the data that facilitates accounting and settlement and the entire back office processing in terms of tax and reg reporting and accounting and settlement. So step one on the journey to computable contracts is gather the CDR. Step two then is all about other easily computable data objects that are contained within the contract. And then step three is about what are we going to do with the clauses that we've got and how are we going to digitize clause libraries or access those clauses and pull them into a digital contract. So the wordings that we have, you know, and those could come from anywhere. They could come from the Lloyd's wording repository, they come from the ISO wordings. We need to be able to draw on those wordings as we see fit. So that's the three phases to ultimately get us to a computable contract where all of the elements of the contract are computable elements. We need to go after it step by step. The other point that we as a data council make on this is we need to recognise where we're starting from, frankly. When you look around the marketplace and we look around how contracts get created in this marketplace, for a large number of those contracts, they start life as a Word document. And that's the reality of where we're at right now. So if we look at, for example, how the CDR could be captured for those that are at that earliest stage, should we be building an intelligence into the MRC through the word templates that we've got at the moment for those that are at that stage? But how do we move forward for those that are ahead of that stage who already have systems that can capture this data and produce a contract as the end product of that system? as opposed to going file, say, vast and word. But one of the key roles of the Data Council, and why it's so important, is it's about driving adoption. At the end of the day, the technology solution, the data standards, what the data elements are, we can all do that. That's not hard. What's going to be a challenge is how we adopt this and how we adopt the ultimately computable contracts that are going to drive digitization across the marketplace. So that's where I'm more worried about how do we come up with those adoption paths? For some firms, it may be we need to start with making the Word document much more intelligent to capture the CDR, to therefore facilitate the back-end processing. But there are others who will be able to feed from their systems straight into a gateway and into the exchange and joint venture for digital processing out at the other end. And we need to be able to facilitate those adoption paths based on what firms need and how best for them to get on this journey. Not everybody's going to go straight to the fast lane. Some people might need to start in the slow lane. Some people will go into the middle lane and some will go straight to the fast lane. And that's fine because we need to recognise that we are a varied market. We have different skill sets. We bring different things to the table for each of our clients. And again, that's fine, but let's all try and eventually get to the fast lane We need to work our way there, but we've got to start somewhere and we've got to start by capturing the data that we said we all agree on, which is the CDR. And just to be really dense, to really explain, what do we really mean by computable contract? There are sort of smart contracts and lots of words around that, again, in this insurtech space. So computable, is it just something that's fully digital and replaces any bits of paper? Correct. It is fully digital. One of the things that we need to do, one of the key guiding principles we have as a data council is we will always act in the best interests of our clients. We will make life as easy as we possibly can 
and decisions that we make will be in the best interests of our client. So in terms of the contract that gets delivered to the client, what's the best way to get that to work from a client's perspective? Is it file, save as in word from last year's contract? Probably not. But we will work our way towards ensuring that we have a completely digitized contract, that what the client receives is what they expect to receive, and that offers them value through the transfer of risk. That's where we need to get to is a fully digital contract. When you today go and buy your small firm's DNO insurance online or in a professional indemnity insurance, you get the contract at the end of the process. You don't start with the contract. You start with each of the, I want this amount of limit. I want to pay no more than this amount of premium. And, you know, you'll have a fancy slider and all the rest of it. The document's at the end of the process, not at the beginning of the process. And that's what we need to start gathering all of these data elements such that they can feed a computable contract that comes at the end of the process that meets our clients' requirements. And so does that almost mean in practical sense, Clyde, effectively a cover note that is at the moment of bind? Is that the prize effectively, rather than waiting 60 days or whatever it is for these, what it used to be, you know, posted <laughs> contracts. I know when I was sitting out in Madrid, waiting for cover notes for months on end and then having to inspect them because there were probably mistakes in them. Is this turning the London market into something that we all expect in personal lines now, where, you know, you renew car insurance, you can see that wording, that policy is in the repository as soon as your credit card number's gone through. I guess it's another evolution of contract certainty, Mark. If you think about actually the time it takes to do the rework and address the errors, you know, the inaccuracies of processing in the current London market, I think Lloyd suggests that this is a six-week extension to processing time. And with the core data record, when it's right first time and you get straight through processing, you reduce that into a matter of minutes. And that's transformative. But what it also means is for you to have the discipline to be upfront in what is supposed to be in the contract in the first place. So when you talk about computable contracts, they have to be being able to be interpreted by computers as well as humans. So that starts to address things like vagueness and inconsistencies of language, because actually a computer can't deal with that. You know, natural language processing is a certain type of, of issue. But actually, if you do have at the start of affecting a contract of insurance, a vagueness and uncertainty of what is the intent of that contract, you're always going to have problems, which is the fundamental issue with one of the things we're trying to address in this marketplace is this promise to pay. And we have time and time and time again, a whole load of issues, not necessarily always because of the scale, the complexity, the unforeseen events, but sometimes because of these types of contracts don't have standardization that allows you to have the record with the accuracy first time, which allows the client to have the confidence that what they think they've bought, they have bought. What's that do to bespoke wordings? And obviously, I think bespoke wordings probably cause more problems than they've ever solved. There's as many versions of the claims cooperation clause as there are human beings in, in, in the marketplace, I expect. Paul, Will this just standardise everything because we have to standardise it to make it computable? I think you can have standardisation but still leave room for creativity and innovation. As you know, I've spent a lot of my career, unfortunately, dealing with US lawyers because of either court decisions or vagueness over wordings. And we end up with market-threatening aggregating events, all because a court says the wording means this when there was never any intention to give coverage. So I think standardization and control gets you to a much better position, better position for the client because they know exactly what's covered and what triggers that coverage. Because of course, the problem with a lot of our vague wordings is they never get tested until there is a major event. 
And as we found, I could say with COVID and business interruption claims in the UK, that's exactly the kind of issue we face. I don't think you get total 100% standardization because some of the risks that we see and some of the clients that we deal with, whether it's from a broking or carrier perspective, there are very specific nuances which require something slightly different. The key for me, though, is, and I said this, I think, at a data council meeting, it reminds me, and it's scary, of building the first kind of reserving software back in the mid to late 80s. And I had actuaries looking at their own shoes while they talked to me, but actuaries complaining that we were basically doing them out of a job. (laughs) And the answer is, we're not doing you out of a job. All we're doing is making sure that rather than spend 90% of your time processing data and fixing errors, you spend 90% of your time thinking about the outcome and applying your expert judgment. And so this is not the takeover by machines. This is using technology where it should be used so that it makes the process more robust. It makes the process hopefully error-free and gives people time to think because this is a bespoke risk market. And I suppose if things are digitized, for example, we've got graphic design software, there are a million different shades of red that you can create by programming different numbers into C, M, Y, or K, and you can get any color under the rainbow. So are you saying that perhaps if we codify everything, they'll have a huge rainbow of options It's just yeah. as long as they're clear? There could be a thousand different claims cooperation clauses. As long as you say it's 971 and not 972, is that sort of part of the point yeah, as well? I think what I'd love to see is a market, and I dare say an industry, we're going with the core standards. Part of the advantage there is that we've become consistent with the industry across the world. And from a London perspective, whether you're a syndicate or you're a company or whether you're a broker, most of the market has colleagues in other territories, in other markets. We have standards. Let's compete on where we think we can differentiate. So we go with core standard data in a highly digitized, computable form. And then let me compete on client service. Let me compete on the way I handle claims. Let me enhance my underwriting by scrubbing data and getting extra data in that isn't part of the core. So what I think you end up with is carriers looking at it from a perspective of saying, I now have the time and resource to look at other ways of differentiating myself and growing value rather than us all competing on something that, quite frankly, over time, we've never been very good at, which is processing. And that's where I think standardization and this particular initiative gets us to. I suppose if everything's as digital as it could be, then you could be as bespoke as you want it to be because it won't be painful. And Sheila, you wanted to come in at this point. Yeah, I think it's very important to remember the guiding principle we have, which is we're going to take an 80-20 approach here. So we're not trying to solve world peace here. We're not trying to make every contract perfectly digital with no allowance for that creativity and that innovation that this marketplace is known for. We're after the 80. We're not after the 20. The 20 should still be allowed to grow in this marketplace. That's what we're known for. That's part of our USP, certainly within the London market, around how we can be innovative and how we can respond creatively to clients' needs. But as Paul has said, let's also focus on the 80, where there is huge benefit to be had with reducing all of that frictional cost that we've got and frictional effort and the rekeying of data that drives us all nuts and leads to huge inaccuracy. There's a huge prize to be had there with the 80%. But we need to respect the 20% that brings all of that innovation that clients need from our marketplace too. We often talk in the London market, it's already been mentioned in this discussion about this, you mustn't try and be perfect. 
where you can try to be perfect, but waiting around for perfection to arrive, which when it never seems to come, is the big enemy of getting the 80% done that you can do now, which is going to give you probably the biggest benefit. How good does good have to be before you can say something is good enough to start using and there's no excuse not to use it? I think Sheila kind of alluded to it earlier. I think the 80-20 rule generally applies. The key here is that we've gone with a core data record. If you focus on the purpose of the core data record and its primary starting point in the back office for accounting settlement and reg reporting and things, I don't think anyone's going to disagree with that core data record. As you move further up the value chain, you get to placing, there's lots of debate about the items that you have. But I think this is about being practical and pragmatic. And I go back to something that Sheila mentioned. What we have to be very aware of is the fact that our ecosystem consists of some enormous businesses with billion-dollar premium flows, whether it's through a broking house or a carrier, all the way down to a 50-person business with much lower volumes and a, a much less mature IT infrastructure. And it's not our job to disrupt that ecosystem and push players out of that market. We have adoption paths that recognize the differences that exist but also the value that all of those organizations bring to this particular vibrant market. I suppose, Clyde, would you say core data records has got to be, that's got to be the absolute basic beginning building block, hasn't it, for anybody? Yes, I'd agree with that. It's a minimum standard. Paul touched on it at the very beginning of the conversation, Mark, that actually there was a lot of questions about why would you start on the back office? And actually, when you start to show progress in small bite-sized chunks and people are accountable for that progress. You're able to adjust where you didn't quite have all of the answers right at the first time, but equally you can move quite quickly to the next base. So as a minimum, and given actually the fact that a large proportion of the core data record is available today, it's just not collected in a consistent way at the right time through the process, that must be a start. But very, very quickly, and depending on obviously the, the maturity of the individuals and their, their different stages of life, we want to move on to the placing side of that business because actually what you've built with the core data record is a foundation, a principle that says you get this right, you deliver some substantial benefits. You know, we start moving away from actually competing or not competing against, you know, the cost of processing. We want to compete because we've got the very best solutions in the London market, that creativity that Sheila talked about, the innovation that we're known for, and not having a 6% differential and expense ratio, because we constantly have to rework these types of issues. We've got used to, like with the introduction of PPL, a certain amount of compulsion at some point. Can you see a point at which compulsion will be coming into this question to squeeze out that final 20% that is still not CDR compliant? I'm focusing on getting to the 81st mark. That's where we need to get to. So, you know, if we, if we, if we want to talk about compulsion, we can talk about when we get there. Let's make progress. Let's crack on with what we need to do, which is start with the core data record, ensure we're all capturing it in the same way, push it into the process, start automating the back office and through into XIS and XCS and, and how all of that works. Start automating that back office to capture the data that we submit which will then be accurate data because it will go through a gateway straight into the exchanging back office. That's where we need to focus. When we've got that right, when we've then started, as Paul and Clyde have said, to work our way back up the chain and start capturing more and more data that facilitates quotes and placement as we go through, we will get there and we will crack on with those as well. But let's do it one step at a time. 
And when we have got that momentum behind us, that's the point at which we can then discuss, do we need to start looking at compunction, as you say, and compulsion and introducing some sort of mandate? That's not for right now. Let's start with getting the data captured and getting it into the process. And Paul, do you agree with that and say that, you know, let's build it first and make sure it absolutely works and there's absolutely no excuse. We can then say there's no excuse for not using it. Yeah, I mean, I think alongside what Sheila's just said, I think we have an obligation to demonstrate cost and benefit. We need to convince people, you know, change is a wonderful thing, but change in our market has generally been unsuccessful and wearing. And there has been a degree of significant fatigue that's permeated through the market, given the amount of change we've tried to impose over the last decade or so. But I do think, let's build it. Let's demonstrate the key value that it drives and the benefits of the firm foundation. And then I think if there are laggards in the future, yes, I think mandate is always an option. As you know, on PPL and placing with a couple of others, I was very strong on making sure there was a mandate there and put my chin out and said, and I'll take a fine or a capital penalty from lawyers if I don't hit the targets. But again, I go back to what the point I made earlier. We have to remember that this market is made up of a wide variety of different organizations with different levels of sophistication. And our job is to make sure that they all thrive, grow, and are successful. Yes, there'll be some that jump into the fast lane immediately, but life is like that. But our job is to make sure that we cater for all. We're not moving at the pace of the slowest. What we're saying is that we need to support everybody. But if you want to go faster, you can go faster. Great. And Clyde, in terms of a broker view of all this, what do you think, and if you could also try and imagine what it's like to be a smaller broker, I know, I'm not sure you've worked at one, maybe you have at earlier points in your career. Is it all about seeing the benefits rather than the cost? Is that what it's going to take to get the brokers to really adopt this? Because it really is down to the brokers to get this information. Mark, the speed of change in the world is exponential. And I think actually, when you think about what do you have to do to compete in the future? These things are becoming more of a more of a must. So yeah, you're right. Everyone's at different stages of their journey. But actually, one of the things that's quite unique about what we're doing on the data council and the core data record is that it's sort of leveled. It's leveled everybody. It's a bit like what I guess COVID did to digitization. It moved digitization probably forward 10 years in a matter of two. And when you think about people that possibly haven't necessarily started on the journey of maturity, what they've got from the core data record and the, the data council here is an opportunity to learn, to ride on the back of experience and other people doing some things. So actually they'll be caught in that wave and they'll probably be brought to a maturity quicker than they would have done on their own volition. But then of course it becomes a marketplace and people are gonna run at different paces to others. And that's where I think the market will find its level playing field. But small brokers definitely need to see the benefits of this. This is not an operational play. This is a foundation to start moving to driving better innovation, better access to solutions in the marketplace. This is the first stepping stone on that journey. And if we can articulate the outcome and the benefits that this starts to bring, maybe actually with the collective wave of the benefit of the masses, you'll find that actually some of those smaller players might be caught up and actually appreciate much more quickly that this is an imperative that they can't ignore. And that for me is a really critical point, Clyde. The Data Council is not here to build magical new systems. The Data Council is here to define the standards that we will use to talk to each other with and enable that innovation. So if a firm wants to go, I want to go straight to the fast lane, I'm going to be the best at this. 
I'm going to have the biggest payload of data. I'm going to provide the best quality to insurers and back to clients in terms of how we provide that data back to them in, in, from an analysis perspective. I'm going to be the best at it. There will be firms who will want to do that. They may be small, they may be large. There'll be others who say, I'm just going to do what I need to do to get this over the line. And that's fine. Firms will choose what's right for them. But that's one of the things that's different about the data council. It is not here to build systems. It's here to build and define standards and processes. That's what we're here to do. And that's a key difference to how initiatives have worked in this marketplace in the past. It is down to firms themselves then, once we've defined those standards and built those and designed those processes, to decide how they're going to harness them for themselves to enable their own innovation. That's what we want to do. We want to enable and unleash that innovation that is so strong in our marketplace. Obviously, we're talking so much about the here and now. It's already been mentioned that you need to have this ability to tell a good story to everybody to help bring them along and help them to do some of the hard things they might have to do to get to the end of the good story and to the happy ending. I'd really like to go around all of you, maybe starting with Paul, asking, what's your vision? What will be the great benefit and the long-term prize of this fully digital marketplace of the future? You know, what's your sort of almost your fantasy of, you know, this fully digitized world, what it might be? We've seen versions of it in the Vision for Lloyd's documents and some of the blueprints, but what's your own personal view? I always find it hard to think about the word fantasy associated with insurance anyway. <laughs> I think for me, it goes back to the client focus. And you, Mark, alluded to it earlier on. In our daily lives, we all have wonderful experiences with counterparties. We order something online. Yeah, my 90-year-old mother still marvels at the fact when I order her a book, it arrives within 12 hours. She doesn't quite understand how it happens. But what she gives is that great joy of expecting the delivery of the book and then it arrives. What we've generally done as an industry with our clients is generally disappoint them. And my view would be we would have made a successful transition if our clients look at it and say, now that is world-class customer service. I get certainty of contracts. I get a product that actually meets the needs of my business. And there's no real frictional cost or processing problem with it. And everything is made easy for me. I can tell you stories from risk managers, but my favorite one was from the risk manager at Amazon, who spoke at one of our senior exec conferences. And she basically said, the insurance industry is a great industry, but to be honest with you, you have a really poor product. You make me submit thousands of pages of documentation every year for renewal. You give me a product that the day after I bought it is no longer as relevant to my business because my business changes day by day. And all of this human intervention and all the errors that come back and all the things that are wrong, how can that possibly be the way in which a 21st century industry is being run? So I think if we can change customer perceptions and get them to give us those five-star reviews, I think we would have done the job. Is your vision more of a, almost like a continuous insurance contract that's uh, changing all the time? Another day, we can talk about whether it's long-term contracts, continuous contracts, hourly renewable, et cetera, that move with time. The core here is that our product, if you looked at the acquisition cost plus overhead up in the 40s, that means that basically a shade over half the premium is left to cover the risk and pay the claims. And when you think about it from a client perspective, that's not a great return on investment, is it? And so I think we can become more efficient. We can spend more time thinking about being creative and innovative, and we can give our customers better value for the premiums they pay. 
Um, what's your what's your fantasy side? <laughs> <laughs> Metaphorically, look, I, I agree with everything Paul has said. I guess you know what we'd like to see is maybe the London market compete based on the quality and the relevance of the solutions it provides, and not be preoccupied or pre disadvantaged by the inefficiencies of trading. You know, when we start thinking about what a core data record does and how that starts to give connectivity to other types of players, whether they're you know, providers of data or different types of service provisions, et cetera. It transforms the product of insurance materially. So I think actually this is a growth play. It's a growth play to sustain the relevance of insurance, which Paul touched on. There's a lot of issues around the consumability of the products, the different demographics that have grown up with technology and then used or experienced this thing that's pretty clunky. And there's a whole load of unmet needs and relevance of this marketplace. And the opportunity here is a starting point in actually addressing some of those fundamental concerns to ensure that this attracts the very, very best talent in the world. And actually they're proud to come and work for something called insurance as opposed to being a little bit embarrassed by announcing that they've, they've entered this industry. And Sheila? So I do wholeheartedly agree with what both Clyde and Paul have said. So Paul has spoken very eloquently about the vision for the end client. And I think that's where all of our focus has to be. Clyde has spoken very eloquently about the size of the market and what it means for the size of the market. Genuinely, what I'm most excited about is to see what innovation comes from this and to see how our market responds. I do feel like it's giving birth to something that will go and grow a life of its own. And I'm fascinated to see how the market responds. You know, we've seen how, for example, key getting off the ground. Well, if you've got standardised data flowing between all the counterparties, what could happen with something like key in the future? Where is our market going to go? And I'm fascinated to see how our market responds, but most importantly, what it's going to bring to the clients. And will it start? I want it to start changing clients' perception of this marketplace, where we're an absolute true partner of theirs going forward rather than just a, a regular bog standard service supplier who, as Paul said, you know, the, the client wasn't always that thrilled with the product that they got delivered to them. This is our chance to innovate and make this an entirely new experience, both for the participants in this marketplace, but also, and more importantly, for our clients. And actually, just before we go, I'd just like to ask Paul, do you agree with Clyde on that growth play idea? If we were fully digital, could we double the size of the market quite easily without having to double our administrative expense? Or could we do it almost for the same resource, for example, and halve our expense ratio? Lots of people talk about operational leverage. We're seeing individual syndicates and individual companies start exploring the idea that there's a large proportion of their books of business that are higher volume, low average value, more standardized, and there must be a better way of transacting it. And you could argue that that's portfolio underwriting against individual risk bespoke underwriting. Lloyd's traditionally has outsourced the higher volume stuff to MGAs, MGUs all over the world. And they do a fantastic job because they have niche skill sets and access to business that we wouldn't otherwise see. But yeah, I see a world where what you do is you free up very expensive underwriter time to concentrate on the really complex, the really bespoke type risks and to provide the product that the client needs that covers their businesses as those businesses develop. I think that's a growth play. Our market has a phenomenal reputation. Yeah, and you go back to Cuthbert Heath and the San Francisco earthquake. We have always paid valid claims, but clients want more. They take that promise to pay, I think, as a given. 
What they want is they want a long-term partnership with their brokers and their carriers that is meaningful and value-creating for their businesses. At the end of the day, we talk about insurance, but we are basically contingent capital providers. And we probably, alongside everything else that we're doing, need to change the narrative of what we do as an industry. Well, um, the danger of giving Paul the last word there, but I've come to the end of all my questions and we've run out of time. So I want to thank all of you for being so eloquent and being so to the point about what the job is in hand. And I wish you every luck in getting that job done and getting some runs on the board early on and getting everyone behind you. So good luck, everybody, and come speak to us very soon. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, Mark. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>